Hi, I'm Deb Hunter, and welcome to All Things Tudor, the podcast that blows the dust off the history books and brings the world of the Tudors roaring back to life. Each episode will bring you awesome guests and topics, stories, and revelations. The power, the sex, the scandals, the romance, and the ruthlessness. So join me, and together we'll pull back the curtain and discover the real lives of the Tudors. Hi, and welcome to All Things Tudor. I'm Deb Hunter, and today our special guests are Deborah Roll and Melita Thomas of Tudor Times. How are you ladies doing today? Good, thank you. Very well, thank you. Yep, pleased to be here. It is so nice to finally meet you. We have tried so many times when I've been in the UK and we've had conversations and have you here today is just a special treat for me. I've been a follower of Tudor Times since the first. Could you introduce yourselves and tell us more about Tudor Times, please? Sure. So, um, yeah, I'm Deborah Royal, and um, with Melita, we set up Tudor Times, which is a website, um, back in 2014. Um, so it's eight years old now, and it's, it was really to provide a place where people can come and get information about anything to do with the Tudors, whether it's people, places. We've got information on daily life, the military, um, politics, religion, sort of a repository of information that people could come and use to learn more about the Tudors. And that's sort of evolved and we've actually written some books as well. So we have uh, the Tudor Book of Days, which is like a perpetual calendar, which is, so every day there's an event related to the Tudors. There's information at the back about some of the people, some of the events. And that was so sort of popular that we've also done one specifically related to Elizabeth I. And there's another one uh, on Mary, Queen of Scots. And we have a Tudor book of the garden. So people that are interested in gardening, it works like a journal, information on what it was like for the Tudors and their gardens, what, what sort of tools they used. And all of those books people can get from our website, tudortimes.co.uk, or uh, through Amazon as well. Thank you. So, I mean, that's sort of a bit about me. I don't know, Melissa, if you wanted to add to that. I'm just going to add that we call it Tudor Times, but we actually also look at the Stuarts um, in the period 1485 to 1625. So we look at Scottish history under James IV, James V, Mary, Queen of Scots, and then the whole thing comes to an end with the death of uh, James VI of Scotland, who was James I of England in 1625. And uh, one of the reasons we did that is we felt that a lot of history of the 16th century is very focused on England, and we felt there's an awful lot to say about Scotland that we also wanted to share, and hence uh, the Mary Queen of Scots Book of Days as well. Absolutely, and it's a perfect lead-in. I mean, you can't really talk about the Tudors without talking about what came after, can you? No, and I understand it before, you know, there's, a, there's sort of the Wars of the Roses, um, obviously, and what, what happened in the 15th century, sort of leading into the Tudor period. So it's very much, as sort of you're saying, Deb, you, you, not wanting to sort of put a, an arbitrary ring around it. So it, it is the Tudors and the Stuarts in that period. But 
there's information sort of what was happening in continental Europe, what was happening in Scotland um, during the period, because they were all very mobile and interconnected too. And, and we wanted that information to be available for people. And we do appreciate that. And I love your all your books. I have all of them. And I'm a huge fan, as you know. I wanted to see today, would you like to talk about Bess of Hardwick? Okay. Um, <laughs> so one of the things we do at Tudor Times is uh, to different people um, from time to time. Uh, so, so we do a whole uh, life story, information about places they lived, um, something about... Uh, potentially their their character or something interesting that happened to them. So we focused one month on Elizabeth Hardwick, known as Bess of Hardwick, who uh, had an absolutely extraordinary life. She was she was a gentleman's daughter, but she was born into a fairly, um, well, poor by the standards of, of gentry families. And she rose to be the richest woman in England after the Queen through four successful marriages, um, well, successful in Tudor terms of um, increasing her wealth and status, and also by being an absolutely phenomenal businesswoman. And you can see it in her accounts, how she um, managed her estates, how she built houses, how she um, controlled her, her finances very, very thoroughly. But she was also an interesting woman because of the, the friends she had, the circle she lived in, in her youth, she was in the household of uh, Lady Frances Brandon, Marchioness of Dorset, the mother of Jane Grey. Uh, she was a close friend of Elizabeth I, and she even managed to marry her daughter into the Scottish royal family, and her granddaughter, Arbella Stewart, was one of the contenders for the throne towards the end of Elizabeth I's life. Uh, so that's quite an astonishing rise from country gentlewoman to um, potential grandmother of a queen. So she was a really, really interesting woman to uh, investigate. And she's best known today, probably, for the fantastic houses she built that um, Deb can tell you a bit about. So it, it, she's usually known as Bess, Bess of Hardwick. And anybody who's been to Hardwick Hall will see on the front of the building... E.S. for Elizabeth Shrewsbury. She, her fourth husband was the Earl of Shrewsbury. She was born and brought up in Derbyshire. And probably as a young woman, she was in, um, in the household of Anne Lady Zooch, who had been a lady-in-waiting to Queen Anne Boleyn. Um, the, the family circumstances of, of Bess's natal family were, were difficult because her father died before her brother was of age. So much of the family lands were managed by a guardian who was supposed to pay, pay the family, but clearly didn't. Uh, Elizabeth was married off very young to her first husband, a chap called Robert Barlow, uh, but she was widowed within about 18 months and they had no children. It's probable the marriage was never consummated because they were both quite young. Uh, but even at an early age, Elizabeth stood on her rights when his family's, when they tried to withhold her dower rights from her, she went to court and negotiated a settlement in her in her late teens, probably. Following that, she went into the household of Lady Dorset, and there she was uh, very much part of the evangelical Protestant circles around King Edward VI. She married again, uh, William Cavendish, and they had a number of children, all of whom had illustrious godparents, including uh, Elizabeth, uh, 
the Lady Elizabeth, who was later Elizabeth I, the Duke of Northumberland, the Duke and Duchess of Suffolk, as the Dorsets became, Lady Catherine Grey, uh, all of the great and the good of the uh, the reign of Edward VI were her were, were Bess's friends. But of course, being part of the evangelical circles around Jane Grey gave her a few issues in 1553 when the attempt to put Jane Grey on the throne by uh, the Duke of Northumberland failed. Now, Bess and her second husband, William Cavendish, they were thought to be involved, but there was no proof against them, no evidence, so, so they didn't um, get into any immediate trouble over it. But uh, William Cavendish, let's say he, was, he, was, he possibly creamed off more of the um, profits of his Crown Office than was strictly allowed. So, it was pretty common if you were a, if you had a job under the un, under the crown that you would you would take some money you know you you would accept large gifts so, so that you could move people up in the queue and that sort of thing. But Cavendish um, clearly did it more than was was allowed, uh, and he got into trouble with debt. Uh, he owed the Queen five thousand pounds to Queen Mary, but before the matter could be settled, he died. So Elizabeth Bess, she was in difficult circumstances because she owed a lot of money to the crown and she had quite a large family by Cavendish. I think there were six or seven children. Uh, but fortunately for Bess, all came good because not long after Elizabeth came to the throne and Bess, who had been her friend for a number of years, was appointed as one of her ladies-in-waiting. So that was you know, a great beginning to the, to the new reign. Uh, shortly after she married a third time, a chap called St. Lou, uh, you sometimes see it as St. Lo or St. Lo, but he also had complicated financial arrangements and he quarrelled with his brother who was accused of poisoning Bess or trying to poison Bess. So that all became a bit of a bit of a murky court case about the St. Lou lands. Uh, but he, he wasn't actually, Edward St. Louis wasn't actually convicted of trying to poison Bess, but clearly um, family relationships, funnily enough, didn't, didn't improve with that. Then St. Lou died and she made an astonishingly successful marriage to George Talbot, Earl of Shrewsbury, who was one of the leading noblemen of Elizabeth's reign. And it was a fantastic marriage. She became a countess and extremely wealthy. He owned a number of uh, properties. He had Sheffield Castle, Worksop Manor, Tutbury, a house in London, uh, two abbeys. So, I mean, he was phenomenally wealthy. And it was also arranged that um, one of uh, Elizabeth's daughters would marry his son and one of uh, Shrewsbury's sons would marry Elizabeth's daughter, which was very common for sibling, step-siblings to, to make marriages if their parents married. And the couple began very well. He was clearly very attached to Bess. The letters between them are very affectionate. But things deteriorated once uh, Shrewsbury was given the role of guardian of Mary, Queen of Scots. So after the Battle of Langside in 1568, Mary, Queen of Scots, fled into England, making uh, one of her probably the worst decision of, of many not terribly good decisions that she made to flee to England rather than to France after defeat at the battle because it soon became apparent that far from being the honoured guest who was going to be helped back to her throne as she had fondly anticipated uh, Elizabeth I and her council decided that Mary would remain in England as a as a prisoner. 
And Shrewsbury, partly because he was so wealthy, partly because he had lands in the centre of the country which were far from a sea coast, and partly because he was staunchly Protestant, as was Bess, uh, was given the rather dubious honour of becoming Mary Queen of Scots' guardian. And this put a terrific strain on, on the marriage, uh, not surprisingly, because they couldn't come and go freely. Anybody coming to their house had to have written permission. Uh, Shrewsbury could never leave Mary unsupervised, so to speak, so he was, he was permanently her jailer. Bess and Mary initially struck up quite a friendship and spent a good deal of time embroidering. And you can see some of their fabulous embroideries that they did together at Oxborough Castle. But over time, possibly because they were shut up together, possibly because Mary became very eager to escape and she became involved in a number of plots and plans and schemes. So uh, the, the Shrewsbury's were under constant pressure. Um, the two of them fell out. And, and at one time, Bess even accused Mary and Shrewsbury of having an affair, which was probably very unlikely. And simultaneously, um, Shrewsbury seems to have undergone some sort of mental crisis and quite a lot. Of, he, he, he seemed to become a man of very, very short temper. He accused Bess of being a bad wife, but he wouldn't tell her what she'd done wrong. And they quarrelled and it became such a scandal that the Queen herself intervened because although Elizabeth herself wasn't married, she was very keen that married people um, behaved in a, you know, a, a suitable fashion and didn't air their dirty linen in public and behaved as uh, good spouses should. So there were a number of commissions were set up to look into the problems, a lot of which were financial. Because one of the issues was that Shrewsbury was getting poorer because he was looking after Mary Queen of Scots, whereas Bess was getting richer because she had plenty of money from her earlier marriages. She had negotiated a very good settlement on her marriage to Shrewsbury. And I think this is the defining note of Bess's character was fear about financial security. Because she'd had a difficult childhood seeing her family's um, money disappear because her father died young, everything she did was about financial security. And she was, she was an honest woman in that she always paid her debts, uh, she treated her workmen well, but if you borrowed money from Bess and you didn't repay, she would take whatever security. I mean, there's, there's one case where she'd lent some, some money to a friend and because they didn't meet the terms of, of paying it back, even though she was then offered an extra year's interest, she wouldn't take it. She took the land instead. So she was very grasping is probably hard because she could be generous. But, you know, financially, she, she, she certainly wasn't going to give money to her husband to support Mary Queen of Scots. So it, it caused a lot of aggravation between them. But as I say, the, the council tried to sort it out and mostly they found in Bess's favour things got very unhappy. He finally took a, a, a mistress, which she was probably, Bess was probably quite happy about because uh, he was so unhappy and stressed that, you know, the, the, the marriage had broken down. And then another wrinkle occurred that made uh, poor old Shrewsbury uh, in, in trouble with the Queen again. Bess and Mary, Queen of Scots, this is before their sort of final falling out, hatched a plan, it would seem, with well it's not quite clear what happened who, who was behind it but Bess and her old friend Margaret Douglas Lady Lennox who was Henry VIII's niece but um, Bess and Margaret they were old friends and they met uh, Lady Lennox was traveling to the north and Elizabeth had said she could not go to Chatsworth she couldn't go near Mary Queen of Scots who was her daughter-in-law but she met Bess at one of Shrewsbury's houses 
And Lady Lennox had her son with her. And Bess coincidentally had her young unmarried daughter with her. Lady Lennox fell ill and Bess was so busy looking after poor Lady Lennox that she failed to supervise the young people who uh, got themselves into a situation where they had to get married. So now the Queen should have been consulted because uh, Lady Lennox's son was a potential heir to the throne. So Elizabeth was absolutely furious. Lady Lennox was sent to the Tower. Uh, Bess wasn't sent to the Tower, but... Um, you know, she was in trouble, Shrewsbury was in trouble, and eventually Shrewsbury said, you know, that it was absolutely not a plot against the Queen. It was completely that the young people had fallen in love in three days and slept together. And, you know, there was nothing the mothers could do about it. And, well, we can believe that or, or, or just think it was a very lucky chance. Uh, the marriage resulted in a daughter, Arbella Stewart, who uh, was a potential heir to the throne. And the last part of Bess's life was very much about promoting the claims of Arbella Stewart, who led a very sad life, really, because Elizabeth wouldn't recognise her as a potential heir, wouldn't have her at court, wouldn't let her get married. And then people were approaching Arbella with plots and schemes. So Bess had to more or less keep her as a prisoner because, you know, she didn't dare let her be abducted. So it's a, a very sad. Shrewsbury died. They weren't reconciled. And Bess spent, as I said, the last quarter of her life trying to look after Arbella, but also concentrating on her building projects, about which Deb will tell you a bit more. Right. Yeah, I guess one of the fascinating things about Bess is the legacy she left. And for your listeners, Deb, I mean, Hardwick Hall in Derbyshire is a fantastic, what we call a prodigy house. So it's a it's a um, wonderful example of sort of a large showy house that some of these very wealthy courtiers of Elizabeth's period built, um, you know, things like Longleat and Burley House and a number you can still see today. And Bess was the only woman who did that. In fact, she upgraded the house she grew up in, came into her possession, um, which is called Hardwick Old Hall, and um, she was doing that sort of towards the end of her marriage to Shrewsbury. And then when he died, and she was in her early 60s at this point, she built this most spectacular Hardwick Hall, which was called Hardwick New Hall, because both of them are still there in Derbyshire today, and you can visit both of them. So the old halls are ruin, managed by English Heritage, and the new hall is uh, wonderful, wonderfully still intact owned and managed by National Trust. And if your listeners ever get a chance to go there, if they come to England and get a chance to go, I'd so recommend it. It's just a wonderful place because you can really see Bess's vision for it because it's changed so little. So if I should maybe just describe it briefly, um, it's this wonderful sort of gold sandstone and lots and lots of glass. And in fact, there's actually a saying, because glass was so expensive, and there's a saying, which is um, Hardwick Hall, more glass than wall. You know, it was so distinctive. And um, when you look at it today, you can see that you get more and more glass as you go up the three stories. It sort of starts off and, and each floor has more glass. And as you rise through the house, which you can still do today, you sort of go into the big great hall and you can walk up this massive staircase, which is hung with tapestries and it was hung with tapestries in Bess's time as well. And you walk up and sort of unusually for the time, it was one of the first to have 
the state apartments right across the top of the third floor. And it has this massive long gallery and you can across the whole floor and you can look out all across Derbyshire and the view is a sort of rolling countryside, most of which Bess would have actually owned at that point. And then above that, they have what these, they call these banqueting pavilions. So they were sort of lovely little rooms. We would probably look at them like sort of small towers with windows on, on all sides. And they would go there um, as sort of part of um, a, a banquet at the end. They would go and often have um, sort of the final courses up there and, and sort of party in effect for want of a better word <laughs> and one of the most fantastic things is not only can you sort of really when you go around it you know you're walking in the places that best walked and but you can sort of see it's the same layout a, a lot of she was heavily involved in the design of it there's sort of debate about how much she did it and how much Robert Smithson did it and he's sort of well known. He's sometimes referred to as one of the first architects in England because he worked on a number of the other major prodigy houses um, like Longleat and Wollerton in Nottinghamshire. So uh, and it's another example, I guess, of what Melita was talking about in terms of Bess and her sort of status and her management of her financial affairs. But she was in correspondence with these other sort of wealthy courtiers who were also building um, expensive, amazing houses. And and they sort of shared workmen, which I think is um, quite a lovely, it sort of just reminds you, it, may, it makes it something you can think about as well, you know, but the way today we want a recommendation for a good plumber or a good electrician. They were also sharing good workmen and and sharing notes and, and comparing, and there's records of best going to visit um, Holdenby Hall, which Sir Christopher Hatton built. So, you know, they're sort of looking at each other's houses, they're seeing what they're doing, and, and Bess was all part of that. And the fact that we can go and see Hardwick Hall today, and as they're saying, not just see the hall, but there was an inventory in 1601, not one before Bess died, and it tells us all the things that were in, in the hall in terms of sort of furniture and decorations and things. And they're able to work out that, that a number of them are still there today. So actually you can sort of see the tapestries, there's four sets of tapestries that are studied internationally because they've, they're sort of um, they're in such wonderful things to still have. Um, and you can go and see them and, and they believe some of them are actually hanging where they were, they were hanging during Bess's time. I think the other thing that's really interesting is the way that we look at Bess's role with Hardwick Hall. So um, in the past a lot, when uh, people used to believe that she built Hardwick Wall, because it is so um, magnificent, to impress Elizabeth I and hopefully to have Elizabeth I to stay as part of the her sort of plan to see whether Arbella could, could take the throne when Elizabeth passed. And actually, the more it's been looked at more recently, people don't believe that at all. I mean, there is quite a question mark about why she would embark upon this this sort of big big building project when she was in her 60s and when she had Hardwick Old Hall. And, and the view today is people think that actually she basically did it for herself because she loved she loved building. She, she was involved with big building projects throughout most of her married life, definitely from when she married Cavendish and the descendants of um, Bess and Cavendish are still the, the Dukes of Devonshire today. And Chatsworth House, which looks very different today. It's very much a, 
uh, 17th and 18th century house today, the enormous Chatsworth house. But at the heart of it is actually still the Tudor house that Bess worked with her husband um, building. So she's always been involved with building works. And the view is that actually there was no way she would have built it for Elizabeth because Elizabeth never went that far north. Bess wouldn't have ever assumed that Elizabeth was going to come that far north. And that she actually built it for herself, sort of in the twilight of, of her her life, which I think is also quite quite a lovely perspective on her as well. That's true. I have a question about her tapestries. Is it true she set up a trust for her heirs to save her tapestry collection and that that collection is still part of what is in Hardwick Hall? I don't know about whether they set up a trust there, but definitely there's four sets of her tapestries that are at Hardwick Hall today that people can go and see still hanging in Hardwick Hall today. So um, I mean, one of the reasons we're so lucky that Hardwick hasn't changed so m- much at all compared to what it was like back when Bess built it at the end of the 16th century is because the family then moved to use Chatsworth as their family seat. And so it sort of uh, just remained, they still used it, but it was just it very much remained a minor house, a minor property, and they didn't spend a lot of money on changing oh. it. And so, as I say, that's why we're lucky enough to still have it. And it's, there's still furniture in there from Bess's time as well. Fabulous. I have to ask you, what led to your interest in Bess or Elizabeth? She, she's such a remarkable woman. I, I think it's that, really, that you can really see. Well, in, in many ways, she epitomized a, a lot of things about the Tudor period and that it was an age when, you know, the, the, the new men, as they as they are sometimes called in historical circles, where people without a, a highly distinguished noble background could make their way in the world through crown service. And this is an example, effectively, of a woman doing that. She served the Queen as a lady. But also how, you know, we, we can have a view that arranged marriages and marriages for status were very much to the benefit of men. But in fact, Elizabeth Hardwick, she played the system she was born into and she she came out on top, I think you could you could say. So and because there's a lot of information about her, there's a very interesting website, uh, the name of which escapes me, but where all of her letters are um, transcribed. So your listeners might be interested in in seeing that. Uh, It's been a major project um to do that so she comes across in those as as a real person you get to find out about her building projects there's a lot about her that makes her a a flesh and blood person not just a, a cardboard cutout of a of a tudor lady it, i think the the questions about her family are interesting she she died she she fell out with an, with her children regularly apart from william the second one who i think was a canny soul and was the eventual heir uh usually about money and you can really see some of the issues about family money because she would she would give them gifts but she wouldn't pay off their debts so she was very she was quite controlling I think in in many ways but she was and that she was clever it comes comes across in her in her letters that she's she's got all these projects she when she was doing her building projects she set up ironworks she set up glassworks she set up brick making facilities using all of her different properties to to support her her business. So she was she was a businesswoman, and although there were many um, in the merchant class who were business people, to see a woman doing that is unusual and interesting. I think. And she sort of got it 
through her own her own skills. Exactly. Yeah. One thing I find so fascinating about her, her life is so well documented for a female. And do you believe that's part of her own doing where she was such an astute businesswoman? She ensured that her own life was documented as part of her legacy? Um, that's an interesting question. I think it's very well documented because her family still own the properties that, you know, that they, they were never broken up. So therefore, you know, her letters, her account books, some of these old properties, you know, they've got stuff in the attics for generations and because they never moved, it's all still there. Uh, I think she was somebody who was very keen to document everything not so much necessarily whether she was thinking about her legacy, but because she, she, you know, she wanted her money basically. Uh, so every every financial agreement she ever entered into is all, you know, very carefully documented. And Deborah mentioned that she a- obtained Hardwick Hall, her childhood home. Her brother, uh, who had borrowed money from her, he died heavily in debt, and she bought the estate from his executors, and she did pay over the market price for it presumably because she really wanted it, but possibly also so that his his debts could be paid. Um, I think she would have liked her legacy to be Arbella as Queen of England, but that was never going to happen, really. Interesting. What do you think, Deb? I don't know. She seems to have been really well-respected at the time, which is quite interesting, of, of the people that, you know, she was in the circles of. She was obviously seen as as sort of a... Well, they didn't use the word equal in that way as we would today, but she was obviously seen sort of as part of that group, as a peer, as as a as one of the those you know very clever men, very clever men, people like Burley, who she always corresponded with, and Sir Christopher Hatton, and those ones. So she was clearly seen as a, an astute woman at the time, as sort of as someone that that was worthy of their time as well, and I guess it's. I think your point, Melita, she sort of, she just comes across as a really strong character. And interestingly, I mean, one of the interesting things I think is that she's had quite a bad reputation over the centuries with people, uh, with Shrewsbury, um, the things he said about her and sort of really blackening her reputation. Um, Some of the more recent research has really, by going through her letters, and has started to really bring out how, you know, she was very good at looking after her staff. Staff. She was a good employer. How she did sort of, um, you know, the, the whole point that Melita was saying about family, but she absolutely saw it as her duty to look after her family, to create the legacy for her family. So I think I think there's something that we all like about sort of balancing up a blackening of a reputation as well. You know, there's a, it's, it's, you we're interested in, in understanding what the other side is. And then she's fascinating because she, she knew a lot of the key characters that we're fascinated by, you know, the connection with Mary, Queen of Scots, for example, um, the, the connection sort of with Elizabeth, although she obviously was quite um, astute as well about staying away from Elizabeth and not sort of competing with her in any way. Yes. <laughs> you know, she sort of seems to have been quite happy being based up in Derbyshire, you know. Uh, uh, you raise an interesting point there, Deb, about the um, blackening of the character. Because one of the one of the first quarrels she had with Shrewsbury was he asked her to dismiss a groom, but he wouldn't give her a reason why she would why she should do that. 
And she really said, well, I can't do that because if I dismiss him, you know, there wasn't a job market in those days. You couldn't just go to the next town and become a groom. If you were dismissed by the Countess of Shrewsbury without a reason or a reference, you, you might end up in complete destitution. So she would, you know, she wanted to protect her staff because her husband was being completely unreasonable. But then he said, you know, my wife should be doing as she's told and obeying me. And um, so, so you can see that she had a very strong sense of, of duty and what was um, what was the right thing for her to do, which is you know nice to see somebody caring for their dependents as she did. That's a very good point. If you're a fan of Tudor history, come join us at All Things Tudor, a Facebook group dedicated to well, all things Tudor. Members can contribute a wide array of subject matter about Tudor history. You can also listen to the All Things Tudor podcast. There's a book club and a weekly clubhouse live audio chat, often featuring very special guests. Look for upcoming surprises for the group members in 2022. Become a member of one of the largest groups of Tudor history enthusiasts on the planet. Simply go to the Facebook search bar, type in all things Tudor, select the option to join the group, and of course answer the membership questions. Join us now at All Things Tudor. Look forward to seeing you. Let's go back to what she accomplished. How do you think a woman was able to do that in her own lifetime? Money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She 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 knew she knew the value of money and she used her money effectively. She she created great, a great she and Cavendish um they focused all of their lands around Chatsworth. They 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 grew their estate and money and land were, were well, their power now, and they were certainly power then. I was going to say, but she was understanding the system as much as anything, was it? You know, I mean, each one of her marriages was more sort of successful in the terms, in, in Tudor terms, in terms of uh, the status and the wealth of the person she married. And I think one of the things when we've talked about it before, Melita, is she obviously really understood how the legal system worked because she seemed to she sort of got it by working through the system, you know, and obviously sometimes there were some issues like there seemed to be with one of her brother-in-laws and things like that, but it was very much working through the system and, and networks. And of course, networking was just, I mean, we have that as sort of a 21st century term as well, but networks in the Tudor period in terms of who you knew and, and how things were done. And she was obviously incredibly well networked. And I think one of the interesting things is a, a few years ago, the National Trust ran an exhibition at Hardwick called We Are Best. And it was actually, and they, they got modern women to sort of say what, what it was about best that they sort of related to or what, what they could see in Bess's life they could see mirrored today. So I don't think it's just us that sort of see that. You know, clearly there, there is something about her that sort of resonates with the way we think about things today. It does. She's a very modern woman. I read one statement that said, even though she was in her 40s, she was still, I think the term was very presentable. So she seemed to understand that Tudor sense of presentation as well. And of course, 40 was very old at that time. So but she married Shrewsbury when she was, they were both about 40. And he was, I think she must have been a very um, attractive and charismatic woman. All her husband's well, well, the three we know about, Cavendish, Barlow was too young, but Cavendish, St. Lou and Shrewsbury, 
all seem to have been really attached to her. At Shrewsbury, obviously, it went wrong, but they wrote her loving letters. They were, and I mean, yes, it was the convention at the time to say you loved your spouse, but you know, these seem to have been really, really close relationships. So she must have been a, a you know, an attractive and charming woman as well. And to be so well networked and have the high opinion of Cecil, of Leicester, of Hatton, yeah, and still be managing to get on with Margaret Lennox and Catherine, Duchess of Suffolk, at the same time. They all she she had a very wide circle of friends. Very good point. She overcame a lot of odds, and do you feel like that's her business sense? And she knew how to marry well because that that was really a career back then, right? Yeah. I mean, I think the thing about her marrying well, though, is you don't get a sense that she just married to sit back on her laurels, you know, that that by marrying someone, she got whatever they did. You just get much more of a sense of two families coming together or she was very much involved and it wasn't Shemelita, you know, she she didn't do it just to sort of sit in the family home. She did it to sort of help develop her family and their legacy. And I think I think her marriages were very much partnerships, um, and I think that is actually quite true in, in in many aristocratic marriages that worked well. It wasn't, you know, we sort of have this Victorian idea of the the man is completely dominant and the wife is completely submissive, but amongst the nobility of the fifteenth and sixteenth centuries, successful marriages were partnerships where they worked together to push their family forward. And but when she married Shrewsbury, they didn't have any children together. So they did it by marrying the children they had by previous marriages to each other with a view of it being a, you know, a a continuity and them both working for it. I suppose part of the issue may have been that Bess had her children by her first marriage or her earlier marriage to um, to provide for as well. And that's where some of the, the problems came with Shrewsbury. But it was it was very much about partnership. And even the looking after Mary, Queen of Scots piece, to begin with, Bess was, although she wasn't officially supposed to be involved, you can see that she's trying to work with Shrewsbury to do it. But it then all just became too difficult. So let's go back to Hardwick Hall. And we've talked about her legacy and how she built that when she was in her early 60s. It's still there. And... You said there's a website we can go to? Yes, so it's a National Trust property. So if you want to know about the building itself, um, I I would just put in Hardwick. Now, it's spelled H-A-R-D-W-I-C-K. You put in Hardwick Hall, and there's some lovely images people can see. Um, I think Melita also mentioned there's a website that has Bess's letters in, in a way that's sort of easy to access and read and understand today. I'm guessing, Melita, people just basically uh, search that. Okay, so that's the other way. And I would just encourage people, I mean, I think if you're going to visit Hardwick Hall, I mean, you could easily spend a day there, to be honest, because you've got the new hall and the old hall right beside each other. Um, But if you wanted to do as much as you could, you would visit Hardwick Hall. And actually nearby, unrelated, but an amazing place to visit is Haddon Hall. So um, there's a lot, I know, I know when people are missed on time, they often have stay around London, but if people could get a couple of days and, and go up to Derbyshire, it's really different and gives you such a fantastic perception, sort of perspective on a different, different part of the world, but different part of the Tudor world. Uh, the website is uh, bestofhardwick.org, 
So that's easy enough. So that's that's her letters. We've got more information about Bess on the Tudor Times website, uh, tudortimes.co.uk. We've also got a, a, a download um, that brings together the information on a, in a well, either in a Kindle format or a, or a print on demand. Uh, there's some family trees on the Tudor Times website because the genealogy of all of these um, families is complicated, especially with all the cross cross marriages. But uh, you can find out a bit more there. Uh, I'm so glad you brought those up because that's something that's fascinating to all of us who enjoyed. Tudor and Stuart history, just to see how these families did come together, almost like business arrangements, and how they were also connected. So thank you for for letting us know that, Melita. Well, are you planning a book on Bess's life by any chance? Don't think that's a plan. Um, There's a couple of good biographies. I wouldn't necessarily agree with everything in either of them because they contradict each other apart from anything else. But Mary S. Lovell um, is the most recent. That's quite a few years old. And a chap called David Dunant or Dunant, I'm not quite sure how he pronounces it. Those are sort of the standard. Uh, The Mary Lovell one's the more recent of the two. Deb and I have both got other projects on that would um, make make Bess quite far down a queue, but uh, (laughs) she's maybe one to come back to actually now, now. rethinking about her because perhaps it perhaps it does need updating a bit it's very timely there's a great book too if people are interested by um kate hubbard called devices and desires best of hard work and it but it focuses on the her building so it sort of tells her life it's a biography but sort of through her buildings which is really interesting so that's kate hubbard devices and desires um which is and it's a general book it's not an academic book So if people are interested, that's a good one to look for. Well, thank you for that. I'd like to invite you two back sometime simply to talk about Mary, Queen of Scots. And if you wanted to get into her life, what was it, 15 years she spent with the Shrewsbury's, 15, 16. Mm. Um, If you wanted to talk about that, whatever you wanted to talk about, because Mary is one of those characters that, I think we all read about her and we just want to go, what were you thinking? <laughs> you know, she's just such a, <laughs> she's so, she's fascinating. I was going to say, I think, um, I think Mary Queen of Scots suffers the same way as Mary the First of England does, is, you know, the history being written by the victors. I think, you know, it's very easy to read history backward, particularly with Mary Queen of Scots and say, you know, why did she marry Darnley? The man was a complete waste of space. But actually, at the time, you know, it was actually in many ways a very good decision. It was let down by the fact that he was, his character was so unsuitable. So, and, and again, the go to France, go to Scotland, or, or go up to the Highlands and, and raise another army in 1568. You know, she had to make a snap decision. Um, it, it's easy to look back now and say it was a bad decision. But, you know, I, I think... It, it is very, very hard not to read history backwards. And I think that when you try and read it forwards, Mary looks a bit different. She didn't have any role models, did she? No, but in many ways she was, you know, she started out really quite successfully. But I mean, you've also got to remember, one has to remember, she was so very, very young. She came back to Scotland to rule by herself in a country she'd been absent from for 15 years at the age of 18. Uh, in a in a 
very difficult religious and political situation. The religion had been changed in her absence. Her half-brother, who was uh, happy to be her right-hand man as long as she did absolutely everything he said, uh, you know, you know, was, they were circling. And, and you think, imagine the 18-year-old girls or women that you know now or yourself at 18 and think, hmm, would I have done better? Absolutely. I think the other thing that's fascinating with with Mary Queen of Scots is, you know, is these debates you have in the big what ifs, you know, if Elizabeth the first was in Mary's situation, you know, if she, if Elizabeth had sort of been, had Mary's life up until the point and had the same challenges, um, how would she have done in Scotland? You know, possibly, possibly better, but possibly not because they're often pitted against each other, aren't they? For, for, for obvious reasons, you know, um, given given the history. Um, and, and Mary always comes off worse when she's compared to Elizabeth, again, for obvious reasons in terms of, you know, the legacies and things. But it's sort of quite interesting to look at the different situations they were actually dealing with um, and, and whether any woman could have dealt with the Scottish nobles at that point in a way that um, would have got her anywhere. Yeah, they were they were formidable. And of course, so was Bess. And it and it's interesting that Bess played such a role in Mary's life. And then her granddaughter, was it her granddaughter or her daughter that married Mary's brother-in-law? It was her daughter, yes. So she was really intertwined with the Stuarts as well. Yeah, it was her daughter, Elizabeth Cavendish, who married Lord Charles. We could do another chat. Oh, we could. Definitely. Yeah, we love could. So, yeah. Let's take a look at that, just how Bess was entwined with the Stuarts or even just a, a Mary Queen of Scots podcast in the future. So I have to ask you, how can people find you on social media? So we're on uh, Twitter, Facebook and Instagram as Tudor Times or The Tudor Times. Both of those will get you um, with us on social media and the website, uh, tudortimes.co.uk. Those, those are the best ways to get hold of us. I think I mentioned earlier we have various other projects. Deb's new project, which I think your listeners would love to hear about, Tudor Places. Yeah, so um, I've just launched a new magazine called Tudor Places, um, which is all about Tudor Places. <laughs> so um, places that you can still, places you can still visit today, but places you can't. So... If people go to TudorPlaces.com, they can um, sign up to the magazine. We've got print and digital. Issue one looked at things like uh, Anne Boleyn's apartments at the Tower of London, the Lost Palace of Oatlands, Henry VIII's device sports in Kent. We've got a lot of your listeners may know Brigitte Webster. So she lives in a wonderful old Tudor property in Norfolk. So she does a, a regular column for us. And yes, yeah, so we've got print and digital. People can buy a single issue or subscribe. And issue two is coming out in the next week or so. It goes to print on Wednesday. So issue two will be available very soon as well. And what's your project, Melita? Well, my projects have slowed down a little bit because I'm I'm doing my PhD on Mary the First at the moment. But I've I've the the two my second book has just gone into paperback. So my first book was uh, The King's Pearl about Henry VIII and his daughter. Mary, Mary the First, and the second one, The House of Grey, both available on Amazon um, or through our website, uh, and that, that's just gone into to paperback, which I'm pleased about. I have got a third one that I'm doing for the same publisher, but it's a bit behind because of the PhD, and Deb and I are also both working on a, 
a pair of books that are sort of linked but not the same book, so two, two volumes. I'm looking at a thousand Tudor people and Deb's looking at, I'm better you're going to guess here, a thousand Tudor places. <laughs> <laughs> so they are um, coming towards the end of their being put together phase. Um, so they'll be published next year at some as yet un specifically specified point but sometime during the course of 1523 uh, <laughs> I, have, I have zinged back to 1523 so you will find uh, a thousand Tudor people that's all about well a thousand Tudor people and uh, I've tried to get a whole range of uh, well-known ones less well-known ones interesting ones people who've done weird and wonderful things um, in the whole 1485 to 1603 period and Tudor places, I've um, made it quite hard for myself by the places that people can still visit today. So some of them are, are like Hardwick Hall, where there's a huge amount um, that remains from the 16th century. Some of them, there's just sort of glimpses and glimmers, you know, so, uh, you know, the site of Greenwich Palace. But you still can go and stand on the site of Greenwich Palace and you still can see some very small remnants of the palace. Um, so it's it's... It's a thousand Tudor places. It's, it's places with connections to the Tudors that you can still visit today. Oh, that's fascinating. I can't tell you what a pleasure it's been to work with you two. I've been a, a fan, for lack of a better word, for, well, since you first came out, to be honest about it. And I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to all things Tudor and to talk to me today. Thank you. That's, that's wonderful. And it's been lovely talking today, too. Yeah, yes, because Bess of Hardwick is, is good fun. Oh, yes, she is. This has just been so insightful, and she was such a remarkable woman. I mean, that's almost an understatement because she accomplished what women today would find difficult to accomplish. And to think she did it 500 years ago makes it, again, formidable is not really the right word because she was beyond that. So thank you again, and you're welcome to come back anytime. We'll work on that, and we'll see you soon. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to All Things Tudor. My thanks go to listeners, my husband, and my team. If you like what you hear, leave a review, follow wherever you get your podcast, and share with your friends to help others find the show. Join the All Things Tudor Facebook community to connect with tens of thousands of Tudor history lovers. You can also connect with me across social media at the Deb ATL. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch y'all later. Hold up. 